This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Christian Brady, Dean of the Schreier Honors College at Penn State University. Christian came to the Honors College in August of 2006 from Tulane University, where he directed the Honors Program and led the university's Jewish Studies Department. Christian has earned two advanced degrees from the University of Oxford, a graduate diploma in Jewish Studies and a doctorate in Oriental Studies with a concentration in Ancient Hebrew and Jewish Literature. Christian also has earned a master's degree in biblical and theological studies from Wheaton College and a baccalaureate in Near Eastern Studies and History from Cornell University. The Honors College mission at Penn State is threefold, to achieve academic excellence with integrity, to build a global perspective, and to create opportunities for leadership and civic engagement. Schreier aims to educate men and women and empower them to, co- to have a contributing and ethical influence on the world, affecting academic, professional, civic, social, and business outcomes. Christian, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be with you. We always ask our guests to begin by sharing a little bit of their background and their formative journey in life and how it led to their career. And so I'd really like to begin there and ask you about where you find the seeds in your own life of your interest in higher education, and particularly in your field of scholarship, which relates to religious studies. And and I'd like to get in a little bit to to that in the beginning of our dialogue. Sure. I'm always happy to talk about it. In fact, um, some of my students and even some of my colleagues are a little surprised about uh, what I do share of my my freshman experience, but it's all relevant. Um, when I headed off to college, I was uh, intending to be a physician, like just about everybody else in my class. Uh, my high school yearbook said MD or bust, and it wasn't the University of Maryland, with all due respect to the Terps who are joining the Big Ten this week. Um, I really had intended to be a physician. I had interned at NIH, and um, I really loved science and medicine. I still do. Uh, my mother is a research nurse. My father was an engineer uh, with NASA. But as I got to school, I got to Cornell, and I just, it wasn't for me. And like a lot of freshmen, I had kind of a difficult transition in trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do with my life. I had grown up in a Presbyterian church where there was a real emphasis on preaching and interpretation of the Bible and applying it. And um, so I began to look around and and think about that, and I gravitated towards history uh, with a focus on medieval church history and uh, Near Eastern Studies, uh, doing ancient Judaism. And, uh, but my freshman year, as I said, was not great. I had um, uh, less than stellar grades, especially in my second semester. And somewhere here in my office, I still have a letter from Cornell suggesting that I rethink the whole higher education thing, <laughs> that it may not be for me. And, it, and it's very amusing now, <clears throat> sitting here as I do with my uh, Oxford DPhil and uh, Dean of the Honors College. But 
it was uh, it was a reasonable question for the university to ask of me. And um, I took a year off, which was one of the best things that I could do. I often think our students aren't really ready for college. Um, always supportive when students uh, look to take a gap year or something of that sort. Um, but I came back and I hit the ground running. And so for me, uh, it was a question of um, did I feel like I was being called towards ministry uh, or into academia? And um, I basically kept sort of following down the path to see what what forks would present themselves in the road to me. And uh, in the end, doors kept opening into academia, including rather surprisingly an opportunity the day before our wedding uh, to go to the University of Oxford, uh, to the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, to um, uh, do a graduate diploma there, which it's now a Master of Studies. And that led to my doctoral work and um, ultimately led into rabbinic literature, the, the field that, you know, you, you don't expect a good Presbyterian boy named Christian uh, to be <laughs> doing Jewish studies, but there it is. That's fascinating. Could you, I, I know the word, uh, your field of study is focused on this concept of tar, Targumim, and um, mm-hmm. I found it fascinating as I started to look into it. I wonder if you could share with us what Targumim is and its relation to biblical scholarship. Sure. Well, when I got to uh, to Ox- the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies and was looking around for topics, um, I explained to my advisor, Dr. Philip Alexander, that I was really interested in how people were interpreting the Bible. And the Church Fathers intrigued me quite a bit, uh, but I had, well, I had Biblical Hebrew and Modern Hebrew that I'd studied and some Aramaic. Uh, I had just a little bit of Greek and no Latin. And uh, Philip said, look, the rabbis are doing the same thing the early church fathers are. Uh, they're just doing within a Jewish context. And he did say wisely, um, he said, and right now in the United States, Jewish studies positions are very hot. There are a lot of opportunities uh, for faculty members in Jewish studies. So if you were to do your academic research here, it's going to be very similar to what you want to do. And I really did want to be in a uh, secular university. I didn't want to be um, in a Christian school, and I didn't think Catholics would take me because I'm still a, was still a good Protestant. Um, and so that led me into rabbinic literature and, and rabbinic interpretation. So targum, in particular, the term simply means translation. Mm. And uh, as Aramaic became the lingua franca of the ancient world, particularly uh, after the Babylonian conquest in the sixth century BCE. Aramaic uh, before Greek was the language that everybody spoke, mm-hmm. and it continued that way for much of the Jewish communities uh, spread throughout, in particular, the Eastern Mediterranean. And so for synagogal purposes in, in, in the services, as the biblical text would be read in Hebrew, because it, from the earliest times we can tell, the reading of the biblical text in Hebrew was considered absolutely vital. Uh, Alongside it, they would then provide a translation. They would have someone called a maturgamon, a translator, who would stand there and provide the Aramaic rendering. And what happened over over time is that uh, embellishments accrued, as you can imagine. So if you imagine a, a pastor or a rabbi in your own congregation might tell you the story. The lectionary this past weekend was Genesis 22, the Akidah, the Binding of Isaac. And so he might say, you know, tell you the story of how um, um, Isaac was carrying the wood, and he turns to Dad and says, "Dad, what's the deal?" You know, right. and you, know, you kind of get that sort of embellishment. 
What's, what remains to us, uh, of course, are the literary artifacts, which uh, may or may not bear a close relationship to what was actually orally rendered in the congregation. Um, but in the case of the Megilot, the five scrolls, uh, Ruth, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and um, what am I missing? Uh, Ruth, Esther, oh, Lamentation. Okay, <laughs> That's right. what I did my doctorate on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, they're highly literary works. And so what I do is, um, in my academic research, uh, most of my work has been looking at how has the Targumist transformed the meaning of the biblical text. And in the case of Lamentations, for example, these are five poems uh, describing or responding to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BCE by the Babylonians. And the Targumist, a couple hundred years later, several hundred years later, is not so much responding to the fact that the temple doesn't exist anymore, but to the theological questions of how could God have allowed it to happen, and the language of the biblical text itself, because the, the Book of Lamentations has some pretty strong accusations against God. So that's where I began, and I'm currently working on the interpretation of Ruth, who, uh, not to most people's surprise, if you look at it, uh, if you know the book at all, Ruth becomes a an exemplar of um, of conversion of a proselyte, uh, because she, of course, was a Moabite who marries into uh, an Israelite family and ultimately becomes the uh, um, matriarch or the descendant. Uh, David is her descendant. So fascinating, fascinating, and uh, more than you wanted, probably. No, no. <laughs> well, I think I think one of the, one of the reflection points, and I'm sure that you have thought of this yourself many times is that this role of the translator and this person who forms the bridge between text and its audience is so integral to the process of education itself and um, speaks to so much of what happens in, in many subjects, I guess, that there is somebody that has to interpret because we can no longer, you know, uh, access whatever was there, either because it's written in an ancient language or just because it's so dense that we don't understand it. In thinking about what you've done, I, I just reflect on the fact that so much of what we consume today as knowledge is in fact just commentary and it's not actually, you know, it's it's the distinction between the, the commentary and the, and the target of the commentary seems to sometimes fade away. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, if I can take it in just a slightly different direction, I, I have thought a lot about this notion of, of um, translation, story, and, and narrative. And, um, and speak frequently with our students about the fact that um, others will interpret our life story. Others will uh, look at what we've done and interpret it um, and read it in a particular way unless we provide them with the narrative and the context. And so I think it's really important to, uh, to think about our own lives uh, not in some sort of manipulative way, not that we're going to be... Um, you know, grifters or anything like that, but to take control. So, for example, in my own story, um, I, uh, as I said, I didn't do very well my freshman year, mostly because I simply didn't go to class. And um, clearly it wasn't because I wasn't capable of doing well academically, although I admit calculus still uh, is, a, is a mountain I never did finish climbing. Um, but when it came time for me to, uh, to move on, I took the time to write in my applications for graduate school, and, and when I talked with people, and, and even when I interviewed here with the president at the time, asking me how on earth does a nice guy like uh, with a name like Christian, uh, you know, do Jewish studies, I I told the story of my own journey, 
And so instead of it just being a couple of bad grades on my transcript, it was those were inflection points for me. That was a point in my life when I was having to figure out what I was going to do with my with myself and where I was going to go. Um, and controlling our own narrative is is really important. Um, we we lost our our son. Our son died uh, about a year and a half ago, New Year's Eve, 2012. And and again and again, my wife and I have seen the same thing in responding there, which is we have the choice of to to curl up in a fetal position uh, and and grieve and and sorrow and and just be wrapped up in it. And no one would blame us for that. Uh, but we wouldn't also be doing Mac, our son, any justice. And so again, telling his story and 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 bringing that around provides meaning for for us, provides meaning meaning for his life, and and it shares his life with with lots of other people. Uh, so I, I think this this notion of translation, interpretation, controlling the narrative is really important, and especially for young people uh, in college age because they're used to to being sh- shuttled down particular pathways. They're used to other folks telling them, appropriately so at different times in their lives, here are the things you need to do to move to the next level, to do the next the next thing that that's on your on your plan. Uh, but but we we have to in the college period help them transition into becoming instead of just commentators themselves to becoming true authors themselves. You've covered so much important uh, material in, in in that description and uh, so much I think about what's relevant about higher education today because this concept especially within the liberal arts of what does it mean to you know live an examined life and what does it mean to you know make really strong intentional choices about what you're going to do with your life and how you're going to respond to adversity and the kinds of situations that we all confront at different moments in our lives. I'd like to ask you about your perspective on how life perhaps is changing on campus. Um, you, you're, uh, you're the time between your journey as a student to now, you know, your leadership in academia actually is over a very interesting period of social history in which we have this incredible transformation going on with the emergence of the internet and social Mm -hmm, media. mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to just ask your perspective on that, because in many ways, I think you probably lived through it in a way that not everybody has. (laughs) And um, how, how are students different today because they grow up with this thing called the internet and this incredible, uh, these incredible social media tools? Are they different? Do you think that a student that enters the academy today is different than perhaps one that entered when you were a student? I, uh, my first reaction is to say no, uh, particularly as a historian uh, and a historian of, of religion, to say that human nature is largely the same. Um, you know, These are young people who are coming in, they've got big ideas and dreams, or they're just following a path someone else has set for them. I mean, it's all those sorts of things that that we went through, whether it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, what have you. On the other hand, of course, the mode, the engagement, there are lots of things that are different, and there's no no doubt about it. Environment impacts us. Environment changes our expectations um, and the way we interact. Um, you talked about my own journey, I, I because I did have a, a slightly extended time uh, in, <laughs> as an undergraduate. Uh, by the time I was finishing, they were just starting to put in uh, lines into the dorms. I stayed in the dorms almost my entire career. 
for uh, for modems uh, and things. So we were just getting into email being commonplace as I was finishing up uh, my undergrad, moving into grad school, and and by the time um, by the time I received my first job offer, it came via email from uh, halfway around the world. Um, so. But yet again, we've then seen the rise of Skype, which we're using right now, um, and uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, for whatever reason, Tulane University was one of the first universities on Facebook after Harvard, uh, for example. And, and I got on it. Facebook, for me, has always primarily been a tool of, uh, of, of being a professor and, and a director of a program because it was students at Tulane who, who said, Dr. Brady, you really ought to, ought to get on here. All the students are, and this is a great way for us to, to communicate. Um, whereas most people my age are, have gotten on there because of family engagement and things like that. Right. So our students, um, so where have they changed? Well, one is certainly an expectation of connectivity. Uh, they, they expect to have information immediately available to them. Uh, we've just revamped the Schreier Honors College website because we, we know how vital it is for them to be able to not only access the information, the data has to be there, but it has to look good on their phone. Their expectations of, of appearances and so forth and the, the fact that they're always going to have these devices from four and a half inches uh, on up. Um, the, the engagement, they are expecting to be able to talk back, um, whether that's using Twitter uh, in the classroom to comment or um, using uh, blogs and things like that as a platform. There is, uh, you know, we, I came in uh, obviously after the, the 60s um, into having been born in the 60s, uh, but I remember in the mid-80s, talk on campus was about how disrespectful in the 60s and the students took it over and we, we had sort of gotten back to, and of course this is the Reagan era 80s, a bit more respect and distance between faculty and students. Well, that's collapsed tremendously. Um, and a lot of faculty embrace it and a lot of faculty abhor it. Um, what I think we have to do is try and, and recognize that no one's going back to handwritten notes, which is good because my handwriting's appalling. Um, <laughs> And, and so I have to be used to the fact that a student is going to rip me apart on a blog. And what I do then is I come in and comment on the blog and, and give a response and share with them and then say, but you know what, maybe the, the rest of this conversation might be better done in person. Or if you'd like to share it with the whole class, let's have a discussion in class. We have to be responding to that because um, students are expecting that kind of engagement. I mean, we could we could talk for a couple more hours. Sure. But those are sort of my first. I, that's where I think the, some of the primary changes are is how they do the relationships. I think some of these early discussions about you know writing is is going to be appalling because of Twitter. Uh, that there's lack of communication engagement because people's faces are in the phone. Um, yes and no. It, it's it's simply the the medium has changed. We're still com people who who want to be social and want to communicate. I think yeah, one thing that seems to me perhaps is very different is just the velocity of that social Absolutely. information. That that that's that's a dramatically faster than it used to be. I think you're right. People have always worked in social networks, so there's some element of this that's that that's the way things have always happened. But just the speed at which information travels today is so different. I wonder if you see any downside or dark side to social media saturation. Um, is there something that is lost because um, students spend so much time on 
you know, cell phones and internet communications. And, you know, you have, I have this image in my head of people sitting at a dinner table and everyone's looking at their phones <laughs> as yeah. opposed to looking at each other. Do you, do you, do you notice anything being in the academy that is at risk because of social media? Um, I, I, again, I don't think so terribly much. I think it's just a question of a change in language, so to speak, to use that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, we were far less engaged uh, before this because our circle of friends and engagement were only those people we could immediately be with. But the reality is those that wanted to withdraw still withdrew. Um, our offices here are within one of our honors dorms. And I love it. It means I can go out and there are students here uh, almost all the time and engage with them. Uh, they're they're not, you know, they'll be sitting in, in, in the lounge here and they might, one or two of them might be on their phone. But more often than not, there's four or five or six of them engaged in conversation. They're talking to each other. They're, you know, so they're, I, I think by and large, it really is additive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we're seeing is the student who might be more inclined to be a social recluse, more inclined to be withdrawn, has just yet another way to withdraw. Right. Um, and, and so that may be heightened in some cases. It's not to suggest that all social media is good, but I think um, I, I, I actually think where it is real positive, and I, actually I'll give you an example of one of the programs we do. We, sure. we partnered with Radboud University in Nijmegen, Netherlands. Um, five of our students went over at the beginning of the year last year and met in person, uh, face-to-face for a week. Uh, they were they come from all disciplines. And they were working on a healthcare proposal. They actually had the uh, um, the healthcare um, uh, sector of their government was the client, so to speak, in this project. Right. Our students came back to the United States, so to Penn State, and then they collaborated via Google Docs and Skype and uh, Google Hangouts. Over the course of the year, their students came here in January, which I felt kind of bad for them with the weather we had. Uh, but they they collaborate. They were able to collaborate nearly half a world apart and really uh, produce some really interesting material. Get together and then in the end they presented it together. Those are kinds of opportunities that we didn't have before. Uh, I think about how isolated uh, I f- was really in my own growth as a uh, you know a nascent scholar, as an undergraduate, and even as a grad student. And even my first uh, first years at, at Tulane, I had a New Testament colleague in my department of classics, uh, but I was the only person for most of my time who was doing ancient Judaism. Uh, I could email with, with folks, but today I'm part of a blogging network with folks in my discipline. I can put up what I'm, I'm currently working on, and I'll, I'll get comments back uh, from other folks. There, there are lots of positives to go with it. So it's like any uh, you know any shift in society we now have to look for we have to still have to be very cautious especially with with undergrads this is a time in people's lives when they're they're going to go through periods of depression doesn't mean they're manic depressive doesn't mean that there's a long lasting program it just means this is a really important time in their life big changes happen and we now need to the RAs can't just look at whether or not they're coming out of their room we need their friends and people who are friends with them on Facebook and Twitter to also be just you know paying a little attention as a neighbor should and and when they see warning signs and things like that to reach out. And so it's it's just a question of our having to uh, shift our vocabulary, shift our language as it were. And definitely more asset than liability it sounds like. So that's that's terrific. 
This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Dr. Christian Brady, Dean of the Schreier Honors College at Penn State University. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the economic context for, for this work. Obviously, it's we're still in some ways recovering, although the recovery does seem to be well underway from you know, the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And there's still, you see a lot in the media about how difficult it is for college graduates to um, develop their initial work opportunities. And I'm wondering about your view from the Honors College about the anxiety level on campus about finding work. Does, mm-hmm. How does that manifest? How does it affect, does it affect the way people approach college uh, when they have an anxiety about what they're going to do when they graduate? Um, and uh, what does that look like in your experience at this moment? Well, I think they're, they're, they're I want to sort of slide into that sideways. Um, sure. Part of what I do see is as a as a cultural change in our students, uh, and and it should be said that um, honor students are in a, in a slightly different context. There there are lots of of great um, and star performers here at Penn State University who are not in the honors college. Um, it, it really is is a great university in that sense, but there is uh, an entrepreneurial spirit that is is a Part of the American culture historically had been, especially the late 19th, early 20th century, um, and we sort of saw another peak during the uh, sort of the, the NASA era of the of the 60s. Um, that's coming back, and I think it is related to this economic um, change, and we see it across Penn State University. But honor students themselves tend to be selected for that kind of entrepreneurial spirit, even if we're not talking financial, we, we may be talking about in terms of academics and, and they're, they're um, I don't want to use the term aggressive in a, in a pejorative sense, but their their eagerness to get out there and find out what are the things they can learn. So I, I think that in, that is one of the key ways that this generation is much different than they've been for 30 or 40 years in that they, they see people like Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs, they see the possibilities I'm constantly having to remind them that it's far less than 2% of entrepreneurs who are successful who do not have at least a bachelor's degree. <laughs> um, but but they, do, they come in with this view of, you know what, I look outside in the world around me and while there may be jobs today that weren't there yesterday, I don't know that they're going to be there tomorrow. And so, I, again, this controlling their own narrative, I have to be willing and able – to, to create opportunities for myself. And so entrepreneurship writ large, not just tech startups, not just um, uh, scientific spinoffs and things like that, but I have to be ready and able to, to be a self-starter, to create a niche, an opportunity for myself, you know, maybe looking at an ad campaign, you know, an ad company saying, you know what, there's, um, the, uh, there's some 
new event coming into the city and, and next year, you, you really ought to have somebody dedicated to it. You don't have anybody on your staff. Here's why I should be your person. That kind of uh, leaning forward and, and getting out there into it is is very much a part of what I see in, in students today. Uh, in terms of anxiety, yes, absolutely. There's I, I see it mostly on the front end with parents of prospective students. Uh, yesterday I met with um, a young lady uh, who is only a sophomore or just going into junior year in high school, but she's an athlete, so she's already being um, recruited, un- unfortunately, uh, but very, very smart. She's done very well so far, but dad and daughter both are asking what what are Penn State and the Honors College placement rates in in graduate and professional schools? What's what's the kind of placement rate in in uh, in the business world, and so on? Once they get in, they tend to see that if you if you work hard and and you're successful academically here, then usually there's there are opportunities out there for you. So it it kind of lessens until of course you get to your senior year. Um, where, where we really need to do a lot more work, and my colleague Christopher Long, who's Associate Dean for Undergraduate and Graduate Studies in Liberal Arts, and, and Susan Welch, our dean, have done a lot of work, are in areas in the liberal arts, places where, majors where it's not immediately obvious. You know, I was Near Eastern Studies, as you said, in history double major at Cornell. Uh, my summer job was being a, a pool manager and a swim coach. <laughs> Right? It was great because I could sit there while I was managing. I, I could sit there while other folks were, were doing their work and, and read my Phoenician grammar and, and learn, learn Ugaritic. Um, but, you know, what jobs do you get as, as a Near Eastern Studies major? Uh, well, there are actually all sorts of things that one can do. And I think that's the responsibility of the university and, and our colleges is to help our students. <laughs> I keep abusing the word translation here. It's translate moving from one to the other, um, from recognizing, yeah, you're an art history major, but you work really well with people and, and take a summer internship in, in HR and, and, and see how that works for you. And, and maybe that, you know, that combination of things will build because what, what employers tell us again and again, they're really looking for are smart, articulate people who can communicate well, everything else they'll teach them. Right. So that that is something that I think people, when they get out, they do understand that um, their experience as a liberal arts major um, has really profoundly positively impacted them for all kinds of careers. But it's something that's difficult to see when you're inside the academy, how that's going to work. And and that anxiety does drive major choice. And this is something that I that that there's a lot of discussion in higher ed right now. And we have to think about because, you know, how many engineers do we really need? Uh, I think engineering is great, and we've got an incredible uh, program here at, at Penn State. But there is a default in these times. It's well documented that you know when when uh, job opportunities go down, people look for fields where they think they're going to be more secure. And there's no doubt it's easier to market yourself if you've got an electrical engineering degree or a mechanical engineering degree, you chemistry, biology. There are more obvious niches to move into. You have to work harder if you're going to be a philosophy major and want to do something other than move into higher education. Um, and, and I think that's an area that we have to work really hard in higher ed as a, as a whole to discuss and clearly communicate the value of education as opposed to the value of training. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to ask you a question along these lines because one of the things that I've always believed about higher ed is that 
the most powerful benefits are not simply in the intellectual development, but also in that social and emotional development that comes from being part of a learning community and that that experience is so relevant to what people have to be able to navigate in the in the work world and I wonder if you could talk about that how you know Penn State and particularly the honors college is focused on those skills that are related to teamwork and leadership and creativity and and um, what we I think you know we perceive it as being a fringe benefit of being in higher education but in many ways it's it's part it's really the main event uh, very, very important. H- how do you see that? Uh, ab- absolutely. I, I mean, the first thing I'd say to sort of frame everything, maybe I should have said this at the beginning, but my, my view of honors education, the approach I take, there, there are two primary um, uh, angles that I take or, or, or perspectives. The first is that that um, honors education should uh, should be the leaven throughout the loaf. That is, that what we do should not be cloistered away and hidden off, and nobody else can do it unless you've passed the secret code and know the secret handshake. Um, but you know, honors courses. Once the honors students have enrolled, if there's seats available, anybody can come in. When we bring speakers on campus, we want them there uh, for everyone. And then the second is that honors education uh, and honors college or program really ought to be a- an incubator. A place for entrepreneurship in the in the academic world, a place to try these things out, and I preface with that because some of the examples I'll give you are things that are going on elsewhere at Penn State University, and we're trying to to develop them and, and make them um, uh, scalable to to the full size. So I, I begin with, uh, for example, a program that really it was it was the College of Liberal Arts reaching out to us, collaborating together, uh, developing something called um, uh, our RCL Rhetoric and Civic Life. And it's, it's a two-semester sequence for their freshman year, and it combines the English requirement and the speech comm requirement. But what they're doing in that class is they're not just learning how to communicate via blogs and podcasts and video recording, but they're tackling these big questions of civic life. What does it mean to be a member of, of a community, a, a body politic? How do we wrestle with really hard issues, right? So uh, this week that we're recording this, the Supreme Court came out and said that that uh, privately owned firms don't have to cover, uh, meet all of the uh, the healthcare um, requests. In particular, Hobby Lobby was saying they didn't want to support abortions, but they they do support all these others. Those are complicated issues that, unfortunately. I will pick on social media here, get reduced to 140 characters of, well, it was five male judges who made that decision. Uh, they want to take rights away for women, from women. Well, you know what? Let's sit down in this class and let's learn not only about the issue and discuss the issue together, but let's learn how to discuss the issue together. Let's learn how to be productive in it. Those are the, the those are some of the tools that everybody ought to have, and and I think a college environment, a high school environment, frankly, is is where we begin to learn these things. We're trying to do it there. Uh, leadership, uh, we have, in fact, we have so many different leadership programs around Penn State that that we've combined with the College of Engineering and our Presidential Leadership Academy uh, that's administrated through the Honors College to bring a con- leadership consortium together at Penn State. And it's because a recognition that even if you're not the person out in front of the microphone, um, you're still going to be leading in your own place, in your own location. You're still going to be contributing, and you need to be taking initiative. I mean, you could just be the person in Brazil taking your – sorry, the movie, not the country uh, – t- taking the taking the orders, right? And just you receive the paper on your desk, you fill out the form, you pass it to the ne- next desk. Uh, 
but that's not where most people are or want to be. Sure. And so it's appropriate that in this college environment, it's a laboratory. It's an opportunity to experiment, to get into a student club, take on responsibility as a social chair, even if you don't consider yourself a terribly social person. Let's figure out what the word social means. Well, let's figure out how we engage with people who are different than ourselves, who may not know about what our passion is, but we want to share with them our passion and increase their own passion for X, Y, or Z. And that leadership development that you do also incorporated under that umbrella is the concept of moral and character development. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, in the Shrier Honors College, as you, you recited our mission, it's, it's to achieve academic excellence with integrity build a global perspective and create opportunities for leadership and civic engagement. And then uh, our, our vision, you know, we, we, we changed a word in it when I got here. To educate men and women, used to say, to educate men and women who have an important influence in the world, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sorry, I can't help but go to Godwin's Law. There's another internet reference for you. And go, well, Hitler had an important impact on the world. <laughs> right? It wasn't positive. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so we included an important and ethical influence on the world. Uh, and in fact, I, I remember my interview vividly with Mr. Schreier, and he said, um, well, Doc, I want the next dean to require an ethics course ah. of, of every Schreier student. And I said, Mr. Schreier, I wouldn't do that. He said, do you want the job? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I do. But I don't think what you want is people who know about ethics. I think you want to develop ethical people and ethical leaders. So what we do is, uh, is try and create all of our programs and opportunities to address these issues, asking the, the ethical questions. I'll give you an example. We, we just started last year uh, Shaping the Future Summit. This is a, a year-long program every year. I, I hope we'll get full funding to keep it going. Um, and the idea is you take a really big topic – that the entire university and community can come around. Our first year, it was the impact of innovation. Uh, and then we have a keynote speaker at the end of the year, Peter Diamandis, in our case, who is the founder of the X Prize. Um, and the idea is to get the whole community engaged from the College of Medicine to the College of Business to Health and Human Development, Science, and so forth, around these big swirling issues. So this year, the theme is the power of money. And I chose that title specifically because it was provocative. So there are going to be some, perhaps, in the College of Business who go, yeah, absolutely, money has got great power. Here's how we use it. Here's how we manipulate it. And then there might be others who will say, yeah, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, I mean, and so let's, let's ask those questions. Let's look at something like, you know, the book Dead Aid. And I always forget the author's name. I apologize. Great book. But you know, an African woman who has critiqued the Western aid, foreign aid, going into African countries, um, saying that it's doing more harm than good. No one can doubt that the initial intent was very positive. But these are deep ethical questions that we have to be asking about those complex problems we were talking about earlier. That's why, for example, the Presidential Leadership Academy, leadership may be a little bit misleading in some ways because the emphasis of our Presidential Leadership Academy is actually on developing critical thinking skills. So we start with a course that I teach looking at how do we examine complex, difficult problems? Because as our president was fond of saying, by the time a problem hits my desk, 
it's not an easy yes, no answer. It would have been dealt with long ago. So we have to equip ourselves and our students with the ability not just to see the vagaries and the complexities, but to have an ethical framework or lens through which to look at them and be able to hopefully come to the right conclusions or at least be aware that when there's no clear right and wrong, to, to have some sense of here are the pitfalls, here are the trade-offs, and let's be ready to be flexible as we move down this path and, and, and you know, sort of the forearmed is, uh, forewarned is forearmed kind of approach on an ethical moral scale. I love your approach to that because I do think that the intellectualization of some of this stuff, um, you know, putting it into a course or making somebody an expert is so uh, – it's the wrong way to go. It, it seems to me that ethics is so, such a community function and it requires a sense of empathy. It requires a sense of community and, and it requires a sense of caring about people in the – in the work that's being that are being impacted by the work, and uh, and so to approach it uh, as a whole and not to professionalize ethics, if you can put it that way, exactly, is, yeah. is a really great uh, angle um, to to do that work. You know, we're coming to the end of our time, and I wanted to ask you because I know that many of our listeners are are people studying social entrepreneurship. They're mm-hmm. studying. Um, they're in. They're in college right now, and they are at that juncture where so many of your students are. Um, you know, making that initial shift between learning and service and and career. You know, and what advice? So, what advice uh, do you have for our listeners? If you could share some of the thoughts, perhaps that you share with. people people in the Honors College as they ask those tough questions about finding their passion and their, and their pathway forward. What, what do you tell people? Well, one of the – there are lots of different things, it, yeah. and it's very funny. I always make a joke uh, about uh, cliches in our graduation ceremony because it's hard to avoid them, you know, do what you love, love what you do kind of thing. Right. Um, actually, I think one of the most practical – things I try and tell the students is to recognize that the job you're going to have when you graduate is not likely to be the same job that you're going to have five years from now or 10 years or 20 years. You may be in the same field or the same industry, but things change and that's okay. And you change and your passions and your interests over time change. Nobody that I know in in higher education administration began there. None of us that I know of really thought, hey, I want to be a dean. I want to be a president. (laughs) There are some out there, I know, but but most of us don't. You know, we start down a particular path. I I just wanted to be in the classroom teaching students, writing my books, and and, and living the daily life with our students. And so you, you talked about the anxiety before. That's one of the things I try and talk with them about in order to bring it down is to say, look, if you don't know exactly what you want to do right now, that's okay. Find something that interests you enough and is going to meet your practical needs and start there. Just keep your head up and keep moving as as you go along. Keep learning. Uh, On the other hand, if you're passionate about something right now, now's the time to go and chase it because you don't have lots of obligations. You're you're not married. You don't have children most of the time. We have some mature students. But, you know, now's the time when you can go ahead and take – we have a young woman, a fantastic young lady, Marcy Her who's a a Fulbright to Malaysia. Um, She's going to start in January. This is a great opportunity for somebody of her age to be able to get up and go and and do these sorts of things. And then to know that 
be responsive. It's going to change. It's going to move. I, I, I use my own life example. As I said, I intended to be a scholar of, of biblical literature. I ended up in rabbinic literature more so than anything else. But I just worked hard and tried to do the best I could at what I did. And so when uh, the provost called me at Tulane and said, we would like you to consider directing the honors program, I, I said, okay. You know, I hadn't done much of that before, but I, I'd had my administrative experience. I'd had great experience building collaboration across disciplines. It's part of what you have to do in Jewish studies. And that translated well to honors. You know, we're, most of us don't start out trained for the job we're going to have in 10, 20 years, but we get it along the way. If we're not reflective, and this is where I think blogging, we require blogging in our leadership academy and so much of what we do now is really important because it's thinking about what happened in our lives over the last week, over the last month, over the last years that helps us to make sense of it, prepare us and equip us to be ready for the next stage, the next opportunity that's in front of us. It's, it kind of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation about that thing about telling the story and, exactly. rec and recognizing that your story is unfolding and that that's one of the great um, uh, exciting things about life that you, you don't always know exactly what the next chapter will be, but you do know that you're going to have a hand in writing it. So Well, and I can, you know, and we can promise our students, we can promise each other that there will be completely unexpected things that are going to happen. And they're not going to be good. Many of them will not be good. Many of them will be great. Yeah. My, meeting my wife was completely unexpected. The day before our wedding, I go to meet with my master's supervisor at Wheaton. And he said, by the way, I just got a call from, from somebody at Oxford. They have a full ride for a, a one-year graduate program. Interested in going. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> so within minutes, suddenly, instead of going to Toronto to a PhD program, we were headed off to Oxford, England. Um, you've got to be ready for these things. But if we have... You know, we have a – I know someone who keeps in his wallet a card with his life goals written out, and he rewrites that every couple of months because it gets crumpled and so forth, and he keeps that with him, and he holds on to it tight. Now, if you're so tied down to a particular dream, a particular goal, you might miss all the other opportunities that are there for you. Now, I think we still ought to have goals. And I think it's great that he has worked tremendously hard and achieved so much in his young age. And I don't think he's missed those. He himself has not missed those opportunities. But I have seen people who have. They're so focused on becoming this one thing that they miss all the wonderful opportunities and, and, and byways that they could have taken that would have made them richer in their lives and perhaps even made them even better and stronger by the time they reach that ultimate destination. So flexibility, adaptability, being ready for the exciting story to unfold. Well, thank you. Those are great words of wisdom, and I'm, I'm sure that people will uh, listen carefully and, uh, and add that to their, to their uh, scrapbook of notes for the future. <laughs> but, uh, but Christian, thank you so much for your leadership at the thank Honors you, College, and thank you so much for joining our conversation. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.